0: Welcome. My name is John Samples. I'm director of the Center for Representative Government at the Cato Institute. Uh, If you're looking for the game between Brazil and North Korea, you're in the wrong place. That's down the hall. Um, What you have here instead is an extremely, as it turned out, well-timed panel on the new assault on free speech, the new assault in question being the Disclose Act, which will be considered in the next couple of days here on the House of Representatives and perhaps thereafter in the Senate. We have a panel today featuring two extremely experienced and well-qualified speakers, which I shall return to in a minute. Uh, Let me first provide a bit of background on our topic today. Uh, In January of this year, two days after Scott Brown uh, won a special election in Massachusetts, uh, the United States Supreme Court handed down a landmark decision in Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission. In that decision, the court, five members of the court, agreed that uh, limitations on speech by groups taking a corporate form, which included a number of different kinds of groups, was in fact unconstitutional under the First Amendment. That set off a series of uh, attacks pro and con uh, for the decision itself, and in particular, it brought a promise of a legislative response which is now uh, perhaps about to come to a vote in the House of Representatives. That response is the Disclose Act, uh, which has been considered in some degree in the House. The Disclose Act, as you might expect, has extensive provisions, which will be discussed by our speakers today, that require disclosure of funding and disclosure of speakers. Uh, And now we learn also that just within the last 24 hours, there will be disclosure provisions that include exemptions for at least one group, uh, the National Rifle Association. But the uh, Disclose Act is much more than that. Uh, It is, in fact, if you look at it closely and think about the past, an attempt to overturn Citizens United not only through the disclosure provisions, which burden speech, but also through the fact that it contains prohibited speech, just as much as, uh, in some ways, as the uh, previous, the regime anti-Citizens United did. Uh, The prohibitions concern government contractors, businesses involved with government contractors, which is a large number or is expected to be a large number of contractors, and also for uh, corporations whose uh, leadership, in one way or the other, are foreign nationals. So we're going to discuss all of this today uh, with two different people, Bradley Smith and uh, William McKinley. Our first speaker today will be Bradley Smith. Uh, Brad Smith holds the Josiah H. Blackmore II and Shirley M. Nott Designated Professor of Law position at Capital University Law School, He is one of the nation's leading authorities on election law and campaign finance, I should add, one of the most sought-after witnesses before Congress. He's the author of Unfree Speech, the Folly of Campaign Finance Reform, a major scholarly work in the area, and many, many uh, scholarly articles also on First Amendment issues. He was nominated by President clinton uh, to serve on the federal election commission and he did serve there for five years serving as chairman of the commission in 2004 thereafter he founded the center for competitive politics in 2005 after leaving the commission and continues to serve as the center's chairman Uh, professor smith has been on the capital university law faculty since 1993 brad smith Usually we we speak from okay.
1: okay. Thank you, John. Um, appreciate the uh, introduction here. Um, the point I want to make about the disclose act. Would, would it be better if I stood at the podium here? Maybe people can see me better. Yeah, typically, I'm uh, people I'm stand that. at the podium. Get a little better sorry. look here. Okay. Um, again, thank you, John, for that introduction. Thank you all for uh, coming out here today. Um, The point I want to make about the Disclose Act really that I want to emphasize is one that's been vastly overlooked if the calls I get from journalists are any indication, and that is that the Disclose Act is not merely a law that attempts to burden speech through excessive disclaimer and disclosure requirements such as as many as five separate announcements as to who paid for an ad in a 30-second ad, but it is also an ad or, or a proposed law that flat out prohibits a great deal of political speech that was lawful even before the decision in Citizens United. And this is very important. I've heard a number of journalists say to me, well these are the uncontroversial you know, provisions, uh, coordination, government contracts. I'm like, no, no. Those are the very provisions that make the law, I think, uh, most suspect constitutionally because, again, you cannot generally take a court decision that says you can't limit the speech of these organizations, whether one agrees with that decision or not, and respond to it by putting new limits on them, on things that they weren't limited on doing even before that court decision. Uh, the court will not allow Congress to do indirectly what it has not allowed Congress to do directly. Now, uh, what are the different ways in which this works? Let me give a little bit of history uh, because I, it sometimes uh, surprises those of us who are kind of campaign finance geeks and work in this field all the time how much others you know, don't really recognize that history. How did some of these things come about? We start back with the original Federal Election Campaign Act and its 1974 amendments, which limited any speech uh, that would have the effect of influencing an election, or in other places uh, mentioned was uh, about an election or, or uh, material to an election. Now, these are extremely broad. I mean, almost any speech could influence an election. Uh, and to give you an example, the very first prosecution brought under the Federal Election Campaign Act was brought uh, by the Nixon administration. This was prior to the 74 amendments, even. Uh, and it was uh, – brought uh, a group of people had taken out an ad in the New York Times calling for the impeachment of the president, and this was before Watergate, right? And the Nixon administration people thought, well, if the ad suggests I should be impeached, surely that could influence some people to at least vote against me even if they didn't think I should be impeached. And so they tried to enforce the law on criminal penalties against the group of citizens that had bought this ad. Um, and the court said, no, you couldn't do that. And eventually in the Supreme Court in Buckley versus Vallejo after the 74 amendments, the court said you simply cannot have such a broad standard governing all political speech in America. I mean, almost anything people say might influence an election. Uh, you know, gee, the economy is really bad. I'm arrest me. I mean, that might influence an election if I say that to the wrong person. Um, and so. Uh, the court divided this. They said you've got to be only regulating speech if you're going to regulate it where there's a compelling interest and that would be speech that expressly advocates the election or defeat of a candidate. But the court went further and said what does that mean to expressly advocate the election or defeat of a candidate? And so they gave suggestions and it was a pretty narrow group. It was uh, uh, phrases such as vote for, vote against, support, defeat, reelect. Uh, others began to call these eventually a magic words test. There was never any particular limit of magic words but the idea was that you actually had to specific specifically argue that somebody uh, should be elected or not elected. It was not enough merely to say to the tune of deep, ominous cello music, you know, Congressman Jones has burned an American flag in his backyard, stolen Social Security checks out of mailboxes, and had inappropriate relationships outside of his marriage. Call Congressman Jones. And tell him, we don't need his agenda for America. And you'd say, well, you know, I don't want to vote for Congressman Jones. But of course, that was not an election ad, right? Now, the court was not unaware that you could have ads like this. Buckley specifically addresses that and says the difference between so-called issue ads and these express advocacy ads will dissolve in practice. People will use both. But that was the constitutional price you paid for assuring free speech and that people could say what they wanted to say. Now, again, a lot of people might disagree with that, that they drew The right line, but they drew that line, and and that's what the system operated under for many years. Thus, through the 1990s, corporations and unions were perfectly free to fund these types of issue ads, and they did so. The McCain-Feingold bill of 2002 attempted to regulate this in, in two ways. One was it said, well, we're not going to allow political parties to run any of those ads funded with corporate or union money. The idea is that political parties uh, are always trying to elect a candidate. We know they're always trying to elect a candidate. And so we can view that as being within that sort of core area that the court has said we can regulate. And the other th- question then was, well, what to do then about – outside groups, right? I mean, they'll just get more power. If the parties can't do these ads, these outside groups will do them. And so Senator Snow and Senator Jeffords came up with what they called the Snow-Jeffords Amendment, and that was going to limit the ability of groups to fund ads within 60 days of a general election or 30 days of a primary if they mentioned a candidate and used corporate funding. The idea was they had some empirical research suggested that ads that close to an election were clearly about elections, not about issues, uh, that it was not vague, you know, 60 days is a clear time period. Mentioning a candidate is a clear thing. And they thought that would be constitutional. They did not cover nonprofit associations uh, and organizations on the, I think, thinking that that would really be unconstitutional. Okay. But Senator Paul Wellstone added an amendment that would cover those groups. And that passed. And many people who supported McCain Feingold voted against it, thinking that that amendment made it unconstitutional. Um, it went to the court. And the Supreme Court, in McConnell versus Federal Election Commission, upheld that provision. Okay, and that was in December of 2003. Now we continue on, and we get up to Citizens United, and for a number of reasons, again, the, the government ended up saying, uh, well, well let's, let's look at what the ramifications of that are after McCain-Feingold first. right? What this means is after McCain-Feingold, corporations and unions can fund issue ads mentioning candidates in the most heinous terms, right, or in the, or in the best of terms, okay? right up until 60 days before the general election, or that one-month period before primary. All right? Now... In uh, Citizens United, the Supreme Court, for a variety of reasons, again, which some may disagree with and and others may not, uh, but the court held, no, you really can't do that. You cannot say that independent expenditures by corporations and unions are inherently corrupting and therefore ban all of those expenditures. The court had long said that independent expenditures were different from contributing to a candidate, and so they couldn't be restricted in that way. And that's what the court ruled in Citizens United. Okay. Now let's look at what Disclose does. Disclose attempts to say that any government contractor in the House bill as it now sits uh, waiting for floor action, it's $10 million. But in the Senate bill, it's just $50,000. $50,000 contract. Now, I mean, those are the guys who have a six-month contract to clean the annex in the Kalamazoo County Courthouse, right? Uh, this is not a big government contract. A $50,000 contract, you might stand to make a $2,000 profit on it if you have a pretty high profit margin as corporations go. Okay? Um, this would cover thousands of corporations that do business uh, with the government. All right, And it prohibits them from running any electioneering communications, only they've expanded this definition of electioneering communications to begin 90 days before a primary and then run straight through all the way through to the general election. So in Illinois this year, corporations would have been – any corporation with a $50,000 contract with the federal government would have been prohibited from running any issue ads from November of 2009 – all the way through Election Day of 2010, a full year in Illinois and in other states with early primaries. Even in states that are having primaries now, we'd be talking an eight or a nine-month period. Now, this is not supported by empirical research. As was the original bill uh, that was that was as was the McCain-Feingold provision, and it is a provision that limits all kinds of speech that, as you can see, was perfectly legal for a corporation to do or a union to do up until. Uh, well, it is today perfectly legal for them to do but would not be if disclosed passes. Similarly, There will be a presumption that any ad within that time that mentions a candidate is coordinated, and the FEC can investigate those for coordination. Now, coordination investigations, as an FEC uh, commissioner, I can tell you, are among the most intrusive investigations that the FEC does. Uh, They can be used to probe into the campaign, all the memoranda within the campaign, between the party, and also any communications between the candidate and interest groups or other groups. So if the candidate has met with anybody... In his office, an incumbent has met with almost any group, any representative, any lobbyist It can probe into any emails, communications between them to see if they were coordinating their activity in any particular way. Once again, this is a vast expansion of the definition of coordination. Now... Most of this activity is clearly legal under the Federal Election Campaign Act. It was legal before Citizens United under the Federal Election Campaign Act. Disclose would make it illegal under the Federal Election Campaign Act. So again, the law is – disclose actually is going to prohibit speech that was perfectly legal prior to Citizens United. The third way in which it does this is by attacking U.S. subsidiaries of foreign corporations. U.S. subsidiaries of foreign corporations were always able to run issue ads. There is a ban in federal law that's been there For many years, it prohibits foreign actors, foreign nationals. That would be a corporation that's incorporated outside the United States or headquartered outside the United States two uh, that are prohibited from participating in campaigns. But U.S. subsidiaries have always been able to do so. Uh, Disclose would prohibit that from a large number of subsidiaries. For example, Verizon – actually, Verizon isn't even a subsidiary, but Verizon has a uh, – Vodafone has a 40 percent or so stake in Verizon, which would make it illegal for Verizon, a Delaware corporation headquartered in New Jersey employing over 80,000 people in the United States to make political expenditures, even political expenditures that they could make not just since Citizens United, but before Citizens United was decided. So again, what I simply want to emphasize here is that you cannot respond to a decision of the court saying these entities, corporations and unions, have more rights to speak than they have been given by actually restricting their rights further than they were restricted before. I'm going to close just by pointing out that uh, the Law, uh, there's been a lot of, I call near hysteria about the Citizens United decision. It's often overlooked that 26 states in this country already allow unlimited corporate expenditures in state races, right? And some of those are states that we would probably not think of as particularly well-governed these days, such as Illinois and California. But others are among the best governed states in America, as rated by Governing Magazine and the Pew Charitable Trust. In fact, the top six states that they rank as the best governed states in America are states that allow unlimited corporate contributions. I was uh, testifying in the Senate, and I offended uh, Senator Leahy on this matter. It wasn't really my intent, but I did want to make a point. He had commented that uh, uh, Vermont, a very small corporate expenditure in a little state like that, could really start to dominate state politics, right? Well, Vermont is one of the oldest states in the United States. It's one of the oldest states in the Union. It has never prohibited corporate expenditures in political races. So the idea that we should suddenly be up in arms because Citizens United now says corporations have a right to do what Vermont has allowed them to do for its entire history as a U.S. state seems to me to be an odd situation to be in. So my point is there seems to be a reaction here to a problem that probably isn't. And it is a reaction that is almost certainly unconstitutional in that it attempts not merely to require more disclosure. It attempts to ban large amounts of speech that were constitutional not only since Citizens United but before Citizens United. Thank you.
0: Oh, Thanks, Brad. I just wanted to point out, which I didn't before, is that after our next speaker, you will have an, a chance for questions and answers. So as you listen and you have questions about the bill, about the future, what the future might look like, keep your questions in mind because there'll be a chance to ask them. Our next speaker is William McKinley. He is a partner at Patton Boggs, where he advises a wide range of clients on political law issues. Specifically, Mr. McKinley advises federal and state candidates, political party committees, political action committees, donors, political vendors, and grassroots lobbying and issue advocacy organizations regarding campaign finance, tax, corporate ethics, and broadcast compliance issues. He also advises corporations and trade associations regarding the formation and administration of PACs, their political activities and communications and ethics matters. Mr. McKinley also represents clients before the Federal Election Commission and other government agencies in audits and enforcement actions, and he designs and presents compliance seminars for clients on political law matters. Before joining Patent Boggs, Mr. McKinley served as general counsel to the National Republican Senatorial Committee, as deputy counsel to the Republican National Committee, he also served as counsel to the RNC Standing Committee on Rules, which makes recommendations to the national conventions concerning the rules of the Republican Party and delegate selection. Mr. McClindy, thank you for coming today.
2: Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here today to discuss this uh, important issue uh, as a a practicing attorney, I always have to give the disclaimer that I'm appearing today in my personal capacity and not on behalf of any client and that the comments I'm presenting are my personal views and not those of any client or other individual or organizations. Uh, I thought Brad did an excellent job of teeing up some of the overall constitutional issues of the Disclose Act, and what I'm going to do today is focus a little bit more on some of the granular practical issues that groups, candidates, and others will experience, and yes, I said candidates, under the Disclose Act. The Disclose Act is actually far-reaching, not only in its prohibitions, as Brad explained, but the reporting regime will actually, as you'll see, become a punishment for speech to those that want to engage in political activities. So what am I going to do? I am going to discuss three topics. The first one is, is that the Disclose Act actually removes the ability of a political speecher to control his or her own message. And we'll talk about this as far as the disclosure provisions. There are a lot of unintended consequences in this legislation that are going to basically result from the vague terms and provisions regarding the, you know, the disclosure provisions but also the prohibitions and finally I'm going to touch upon a little bit of historical precedent. We've seen this type of situation before. Uh, in 2000 Congress hurriedly passed the 527 disclosure bill that was intended to regulate unregistered 527s, these organizations that basically had a file in SS4 to establish themselves as a 527 and they were running advertisements that would reference a federal officeholder Or candidate. And what Congress did is they passed a disclosure bill requiring them to register and report with the IRS so that they could disclose their receipts and disbursements. And we'll talk about some of the unintended consequences of that bill and how they relate to the Disclose Act. Uh, First, you know, the Supreme Court stated, and this was very important for those of us who practice in this area, it was refreshing to see Justice Kennedy's opinion recognize what actually happens in political debates. That political speech is not this well-thought-out, carefully planned, linear process. You don't start in January of the election year, plan it out, and don't deviate from it all the way to November. It's give and take. And it's give and take because your opponent says something, you react. You want to say something to draw your opponent out. And so there's a lot of give and take, and you need to be very nimble when you're engaging in political speech. The Disclose Act, through a lot of these provisions, destroys the ability of these political speakers to react in this way. Number one, it confers a competitive advantage on, your, on, on a political speaker's opponents. And how does it do this? Number one, if you're incorporated, whether a for-profit or a non-profit, whether you're a C4 battling on an issue or, as the way it's currently drafted, if you're a candidate committee that is incorporated as a non-profit corporation, the foreign national certification that every corporation is required to be filed will apply to those to, to those organizations. What does this mean? Before you can even engage in political speech, before you can receive contributions, before you can receive donations, before you can make expenditures, before you can make disbursements for electioneering communications, you basically have to register with the federal government. What this is is basically a prior restraint on speech because absent the prior registration, you're in violation of the law simply because you've chosen to take the corporate form. You need to certify that you don't have any foreign nationals in the decision-making line of command in your organization, and if you're for-profit, that you don't have 20% or more foreign ownership in the, in the organization. This is basically going to require, and the other, the other issue is, it requires the disclosure of transfers. As anybody who has ever been involved in politics, there is some planning that goes into speech. Speech just doesn't happen. As the Supreme Court said in Buckley, money does equal speech, because speech is not able to be done for free these days. If you want to get onto television, which is still the preferred medium to penetrate and to reach the most people, you're going to have to buy time on TV or radio, which means you're going to have to go out there and actively fundraise. The Disclose Act, if you receive, if you are a nonprofit corporation and you are advocating on an issue, and as any of you have seen, the issue ads that talk about, they discuss the issue, and Brad gave a good, ex- good example of a more pointed issue advocate issue ad, but we see how all the time today on cap and trade, your financial reform, where you lay out the issue and you say, call your congressman, reach them at you know, 225-3121, or call Congress, do any of those types of ads. That takes money. And so you are going to have to telegraph your political strategies and plans by filing disclosure reports when you transfer money to an organization that's going to sponsor these types of advertisements. You already had to register and get your speech police license when you had to file the foreign national certification. But this act will also require you to disclose what is going on behind the the scenes. This infringes not only the freedoms of speech, but it also of association. And what this means is, is that it's going to diminish the effectiveness of the advocacy on both issues and candidates. Because nobody is going to be in control of their message anymore. Your opponents are going to check the FEC filings. They're going to look, did you file your certification? Did you basically broadcast that you intend to engage in political activities? How did you raise the money? Did anybody transfer any money to you for the purpose of airing those types of advertisement or just to support your general purposes that may not have been restricted or limited so that they would not be used for those purposes? And so we will see a flurry of complaints. Brad touched upon... A number of the coordination complaints that you see in the investigations that ensue where you get basically the blizzard of paper that comes from the federal government saying give us everything that you've ever done so that we can determine what contacts what communications what activities were engaged in that may have resulted in a coordinated communication imagine if you're a nonprofit that advocates on an issue your only concern is the issue it's not the election and you basically raise some money and somebody says wait a minute You must have raised money without disclosing the transfer. Anybody who contributed to the organization, did you basically work out the written document that limits the ability to use the funds for any type of what the disclose act uh, calls campaign activities? Now you're going to get the subpoenas that are going to talk about give us any and all contacts between the sponsoring organization, the organization that sponsored the advertisement, and the donors. Give us all your files. That is a severe infringement on the freedom of association and will chill speech. There will be a lot of organizations that are passionate about issues, and we're not talking about candidates, that will choose not to speak out about those issues because, number one, their advocacy will be diminished. It will no longer be effective. And it will also drive a wedge between any potential donors and the organizations that want to pursue their position on those issues. The Disclose Act also compels, as Brad said, disclosure in the communications themselves. The stand-by-your-ad disclaimers are basically going to kill the 30-second ad. As anybody knows who has ever been involved in advocacy campaigns, or many of you may have volunteered on campaigns, you need to stretch your dollars. And some of the ways that you stretch your dollars is instead of buying a 60-second ad on television or cable or radio, you buy 30-second ads. You've got 30 seconds to deliver your message to the viewers or the listeners. With the two stand by your ad disclaimers, they're going to have to go in there, not only from the sponsoring organization, but from the top donors, you've lost approximately half of that advertisement. Now you only have 15 seconds to make your point. So everybody complains about the 30-second soundbite. Now they're going to complain about the 15-second soundbite. The other thing it does is it completely, it requires people to pay for speech that is mandated by the federal government. It's not the message that the group wants to deliver. They want to talk about the issue. But now not only do you have the head of the organization and a stand by your ad disclaimer, now you've got the donor. And why would the donor want to appear in that? I mean, this is compelled speech that I think is also going to severely limit the ability of organizations to deliver effective speech, but also in a cost effective manner. The unintended consequences resulting from the Disclose Act I think are also going to be fairly severe. The foreign national certification, as I stated before, applies not only to for-profit corporations, but also the way it's currently worded is going to apply to non-profit corporations. This means that incorporated federal candidate committees, because the FEC allows you to incorporate as a non-profit corporation, and state campaigns, they don't distinguish between federal activity or state activity, but state campaigns that may be incorporated, and party committees are going to be required to file this certification So what's the difference between an unincorporated association that is a political party committee and an incorporated party committee? Why should one have to file a certification certifying that there's no foreign national involvement in their operations whatsoever, whereas the unincorporated association doesn't need to do that simply because they chose the corporate form? How does that serve preventing corruption? Can anybody imagine the scenario where a federal candidate for liability protection reasons decides he wants to or she wants to Incorporate as a nonprofit corporation because if somebody slips and falls at a fundraising event, they want to have the, the protection that the nonprofit corporate forum provides to them. Now they've got to go to their volunteer board of directors, their volunteer officers, and say, you know what, I've known you a long time, just want to make sure you're either a citizen or you're lawfully admitted for permanent residence. Okay? How many times do we see volunteers that may come from college campuses? work on campaigns, and actually achieve some leadership in the organization. What if that individual is there on a student visa? Lawfully in the United States, but under federal campaign law, still a foreign national. The due diligence that's going to be required to file the certification form is going to be exceptional, and it's going to to force candidates and leaders to ask some very personal questions of the people that are making decisions in their organizations. Also, the definition of independent expenditure, I believe, is going to be something that will be litigated immediately. Instead of relying on the uh, express advocacy definition that Brad talked about in Buckley v. Vallejo, which is you expressly advocate um, in express terms the election or defeat of a federal candidate, they're now including the term functional equivalent, which is apparently supposed to be drawn based on the Wisconsin right to life decision. Now... I've noticed, I noticed with some interest when I read the Citizens United decision that the, the court, in the Kennedy opinion, took some pains to chastise the FEC for the regulation that it put out post-Wisconsin Right to Life. They basically said, you took an objective test, which is an advertisement is susceptible of no other reasonable interpretation than an appeal to vote for or against a candidate, and you basically turned it into this two-part, 11-factor, nobody-can-understand-it test. And what you've done is you've made the law so vague that nobody can speak for fear of criminal penalty that you're requiring people to go to the Federal Election Commission and basically file advisory opinions to say, is it okay if I say this? What we're seeing now is that the Disclose Act is going to codify this type of standard into federal law. That is insane. I'm sorry. I don't mean to use such stark terms. But what we want to do after Citizens United, and I thought that this court did a very good job of laying down some clear markers, they favor more speech, not less speech. We want more speakers in the process, not less speakers in the process. It's interesting because the Citizens United case, as far as I know, and I think other commentators have made it, is the first one that references the Internet and blogs. It's the first one to say that, you know, social media allows ordinary individuals to go out there and basically become Internet superstars on issues. And it's true. Some lady or some guy in the basement can make their own homemade video about an issue, whether it's the oil spill in the Gulf or some other type of video or issue that they care about, and it's probably going to reference federal candidates and officeholders. And now what you're going to see is that they may possibly be subject to regulation under this. Because even though people tried to fix the Disclose Act, and I commend them for that effort, what they didn't do was apply the same standards in the definition of independent expenditure. The regulation of the Internet is still a live issue under the Disclose Act as currently drafted. Now, it seems to me that the barriers to political participation have been lowered on the Internet to the point where we do have more speakers, where we have more speech. And if the Disclose Act is not fixed, then the Internet status as a free speech zone is still in danger. The other thing to consider is how is this going to be implemented? I'm probably going over a little bit. Excuse me. Um... How is it going to be implemented? Thirty It becomes effective 30 days after enactment. That is not enough time for the FEC to put out regulations explaining these vague terms. What reporting forms are these groups going to use to file their forms, to, to file their activities with the FEC? The FEC is required to create the forms, send them to Congress for approval. That will not happen with 30 days. There will be mass confusion if this is passed. And it will take effect right at the height of the 2010 election season. So not only will you have the campaigns and the party committee struggling to figure out, well, what form and how do I file the certification about the foreign national issue? But the groups that are actually raising money and spending money, how are they going to disclose the required information that's supposed to be filed with the FEC? You can't file it electronically. You got a PDF and affidavit. How, what form is this going to take? And so there's a lot of practical hurdles here with the disclose act before we get into the fall elections. And finally I said I was going to talk about some historical precedents, and that is the 2527 disclosure law. And basically what that did is it was a reaction to the 527s that were running ads referencing federal candidates and office holders. Congress didn't like it, so they passed a law and said you got to register and report to the IRS. You got to file an 8871 which is your registration form and 8872 that re- discloses your receipts and disbursements. Problem is is that they didn't word it correctly. What they wanted to do was to get at the unregistered 527s that were airing these issue ads. Instead, what they did is they worded it so broadly and vaguely that it swept in state and local candidates. And many of us who have been doing this for a while remember what was happening after this law was enacted. State candidates that did not file the forms with the IRS were having complaints filed against them by their opponents saying, you owe 35% tax on every dollar you've brought in and every dollar you've spent. And if you're a statewide gubernatorial campaign, fully registered and reporting with the state election agency, now you are looking down the barrel of the IRS gun saying, where's the 35% tax? We've seen this before. People need to slow down on this and think about the practical implications of this law because what's going to happen is we're going to have a mass state of confusion in 2010 if this law is enacted as currently drafted.
0: Thanks very much, Bill. Uh, I would make a couple of additional points. One is that it's important to keep in mind that uh, this bill, the disclosure provisions of this bill, are based the mandated disclosure, and it is mandated. It's forced by the government. Disclosure is generally justified in a First Amendment context by the fact that it gives more information to voters. It gives voters information that they presumably want, and then it can help them uh, form their vote and cast their ballot uh, better, perhaps even make it more closer to what they want to do. But the odd thing is that uh, in that context, the disclaimer portions of this, where, which really require heads of groups or also heads of businesses to go on the air and state in very specific terms that are in the legislation that they support the ad, uh, usually involve CEOs who almost no one who is a voter is going to understand or know who the person is. So they can't use the person in the what's called a heuristic or as a cue giver to uh, know what to do about the ad even. That is to say they don't know the person and the person's existence in the ad and requiring them there adds nothing really at the margin to the information the voter has as compared to the fact that a corporation or a business or a group is doing this. So in that sense, it's easy to understand one of the remarkable things I've seen about uh, this uh, piece of legislation is, the kinds of internet discussions that we follow about campaign finance, many of which have a uh I would say, a proportionate majority of people who support campaign finance regulation efforts, many of the same people who supported McCain-Feingold or who were against Citizens United are saying about the Disclose Act, you know what, the, disclose, uh, the disclosure requirements are disproportionate. They're way over the top, and we can't really support this. I think this has been a pretty remarkable part of the discussion that has gone on uh, so far about this.